Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Friday, August 19th, 2022. I am John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine, which you can read at commentary.org. Our September issue is up with Robert Pondicio's stunning article on the parents' revolt, um, Christine Rosen on Republicans pouncing, uh, Jim Meggs on nuclear waste. Uh, so much good stuff. Go there, read it, subscribe, $7.97 a month. It's time. It'll help support the podcast. It'll help support the magazine, best magazine, best monthly magazine in the world. Give it a shot, commentary.org. Please go right now. With me, Abe Greenwald is out today. With me, as always, media commentary columnist Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor author of Rise of the New Puritans and uh, guest appearance tonight on Bill Maher's Equal Time. Real Time. Real Time. Time. The Time of Bill Maher on HBO. Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And with us today in Abe Stead, Commentary Magazine, contributing editor, uh, author of many pieces on uh, intelligence and law enforcement failure, and here to talk about that and other stuff today, and the host of the Reeducation podcast available on Google, uh, Apple Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, Eli Lake. Hi, Eli. Thanks so much for having me again. Uh, so, Eli, uh, so much going on. Um, the Rudy Giuliani went on Newsmax or OAN or one of those Newsmax OAN type of deals last night and said all Trump was trying to do was preserve the classified documents in a safe. That's all he was trying to do was preserve them in a safe. How You know, if you look at the law, the laws say that he just isn't allowed to destroy them. Not that he can just take them and put them in a safe. So now we're up onto explanation 411 of what Trump was doing with the documents, which was to preserve them. Having said that... There appears to be a developing line of argument or attack in the Trump camp, which is that, and Kash Patel, the former Devin Nunes official who was then briefly at the Defense Department and has written a children's book called something like The Day They Tried to Kill the King, and on the cover is Trump looking like a king, so he's a Michigana. Kash Patel basically saying... All Trump wanted was the documents relating to the Russia hoax and the efforts to start the investigation of Trump in 2016. He wanted them so he could have them so he could prove his innocence. And so he that's that's actually what 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 he has. And uh, that he's also the guy who said, well, he declassified all of them by saying, poof, they're declassified. So, Eli. As as somebody who has spent 20 years reporting on intelligence issues and law enforcement issues and questions of how intelligence and law enforcement cooperate and don't cooperate and all of that, what do you make of these developing lines of discussion? Well, I mean, nobody should be surprised, of course, that the Trump side is kind of going to say whatever it is that's going to make sense to them in the news cycle, whether it's true or not, that we know it's a constant. On the other hand, I don't trust the Justice Department and the FBI, not because I'm some sort of, you know, radical patriot front person or something like that, but just because their track record in the last six years when it comes to 
sensitive political investigations, particularly involving Trump or his allies, has been atrocious. And they think the real question that we have to look out for is not whether there is some sort of colorable case as to whether Trump may have technically violated a law having to do with either the handling of classified documents or the Presidential Records Act or whatever it is, but whether or not the investigative steps that were taken, including this very dramatic raid on his residence, were warranted and would have in similar cases been applied to, say, a Democrat or another former you know, senior official or something like that. So that is what I'm still looking for. We now have a development with the affidavit underlying the, the search warrant that will be, uh, I guess, partially declassified in a redacted form. So we will learn more about what evidence and what exactly the FBI is looking for. I think that we should all kind of hold our, you know, keep our powder dry, so to speak, because there's a lot we don't know. And I'm sorry, it's very plausible to me that Merrick Garland would be taking a kind of highly political step here in order to either persuade you know, his party that he's taking this investigation very seriously, or perhaps because he really believes that this is not going to have a, a sort of effect or maybe, I mean, it's, there's any number of explanations for it, but, but I think it's also fair to say that whatever the latest explanation is from Trump land, we should be very skeptical of that as well. But I, I, my baseline at this point is this smells unbelievably fishy to me. It has from the very beginning and uh, the, this, I don't accept at face value the argument that was we were told that, well, there was a subpoena and they didn't do the subpoena and yada, yada, yada. I mean, if you want to play the explanations game, the explanations that have leaked to the press have, in favor of the FBI and the Justice Department have also changed a lot. You know, remember, it was nuclear secrets and then it was it doesn't have to be classified. And then we were, told, you know, I mean, if it's such urgent code word sensitive information, then why were they spending like more than a year? To try to recover it if it was that if they were that concerned so again also, it took merrick garland weeks to approve yeah the, why would he take if, if, it was, if it was warrant. right if it was really really dangerous stuff if it got in the wrong hands and everything like that you would think that this would be a higher priority it wouldn't have they wouldn't have deliberated so much so again let's wait to see all of the information but we have to we cannot ignore the history of not just the FBI, other FBI investigations, but I'm talking about the, the way in which we have had news frenzies about partial leaks of somewhat accurate and often inaccurate information mixed together about what the FBI was looking for and how it has become an industry. And I actually have to say, I think that there are millions of Americans who are addicted to this narrative and that maybe we should start thinking about this as a kind of condition and that, you know, MSNBC is not just a very partisan news network. They're kind of like a drug dealer. Okay. I, I want to get, get go back to Cash Patel for a minute. Sure. Um, so Cash Patel, person with an interesting history, was a public defender in Miami, then became a federal public defender. Generally speaking, such such people will tend to have political views that are not congruent with the views of, of, of very conservative people. But whatever happened, he ended up working for Devin Nunes, who was the chairman of the house intelligence committee no yes and by yes. the way the cash patel is a classic example yeah. of um an of an american who has been red-pilled because when he right. starts off as a lawyer for the justice department he is a kind of traditional obama a loving liberal yeah. and that, that is by the way i think a major political story in general right. of the next 10 years of all these red-pilled gen xers 
Right. Okay. So here's what I want to bring up. So he, Nunes and others, are absolutely mm-hmm. obsessed with the idea during the Trump presidency that Trump needs to declassify the documents relating to the crossfire hurricane yes. investigation that was launched before the election in 2016 on the question of ties between the Trump campaign, potential ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. Trump never declassifies these documents. We don't know why he never did. He kept hinting that he was Well, there's a lot of stuff that was declassified. Okay. There's a ton of stuff that was declassified in the last six, eight months of the administration. But there's more, and supposedly, as I say, that this is what he... I take it from a leak to Newsweek that sounds like him, so I'm not 100% sure it's him, but it, it it's congruent with his general line of mm-hmm. argument here, is that Trump wanted these documents so he could have them declassified, say they were declassified, have them, and at a time of his choosing, drop the fact that the FBI had been pursuing him unjustly, and here was the proof, and the media couldn't look away, and all of that. Um. But you're saying a bunch of documents were declassified, but not all of them. Well, I, so, I mean, I guess yeah. not all of them. Okay. And 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 by the way, if that's the strategy, it's a dumb strategy because I'm not the, saying it's a smart strategy, right? Because the much better strategy is to have enough faith that John Durham will get all of this in some final report, and he's a far more credible messenger than Donald Trump waving a bunch of documents that used to be secret around. You know, I mean, so. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of stuff that was declassified. I wrote about some of it. I mean, in that framed and guilty piece for commentary, guilty, which uh, which was our cover story on what on what to make of the Trump right. Russia connection after all was said and done. Which yeah, is, I mean, like just to, said, to give an example, there was an affidavit from an FBI agent named um, named Thomas Barnett. I think it's Thomas. It's the last name is Barnett which was devastating to a lot of the original crossfire hurricane. He, he accused basically the Mueller team of playing what he called collusion clue, where they would just find whatever person in Trump's orbit and connect them into tenuously, incredibly tenuously some crime. And they were ignoring the actual agents who had been investigating it longer than they had been there. There was the famous piece of intelligence where the CIA picks up that information that the Russians know that Hillary is trying to frame Trump for something having to do with Russia, and they pass it along to the FBI. And what did the FBI do about it? Republicans cared a great deal about this. Democrats did not care at all. Most of the media totally ignored it. So there was a lot of stuff that was declassified, including, by the way, I mean, in good I and mean, lots of good stuff, like the uh, transcript of the phone conversation between Mike Flynn and Ambassador Kislyak, which entirely clears Flynn of uh, the initial allegations against him regarding him being a Russian asset. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that was declassified. I'm, I can imagine there might be more, but to a certain extent, there's something that doesn't quite make sense because all you have to do is read Inspector General Horowitz's stuff as well as the so indictments. Horowitz is the Inspector General yeah, right. of the FBI who wrote the report on the FBI's malfeasance and misbehavior in its conduct Right of the Russia probe, and he ultimately to... he cleared them for opening it. So it's like he said right. they opened it; they had the right yeah. predicate. But it's that right. report is so devastating to the FBI. But and three, then three yeah. people, I believe, three people were were in one, senior management. One or three? No, no. One person was um, pled guilty. Kevin Kleinsmith. I'm um, right. 
Yeah. And who has now, by the way, mysteriously gotten his law license back. Unbelievable. And he got probation. Uh, he got two, a slap after, on the wrist. Yeah. Having having pled guilty to plagiarizing, not plagiarizing. No, but, no, to um, doctoring, to doctoring evidence for a yes. FISA warrant to the secret court where right. there is an extra burden on the FBI to be scrupulous and honest yeah. because yeah. there's no there's no there's no like other there's no uh, cross-examination. There's no counsel for the defense. Yeah. So. So he was naturally disbarred, and now he has been undisbarred by the in, in the District of Columbia, uh, which I is think pretty still staggering. Is it's unbelievable. So, the bar is low in DC just for disbarment. Yes, I like that's a constant theme. Way, yes. it's, it's it's where ne'er do well yeah, lawyers so go Kevin to get. Kevin pled guilty, and then I think two or three people lost their jobs as a direct result. Yeah, there were some people I think who did lose their jobs. Um, and un in a kind of related stuff, Peter struck of course, was fired and he was yes. the agent in charge of both the Hillary and the Trump investigations. But there really hasn't been much accountability. But I'm just saying, if you right. if you just read uh, Inspector General Horowitz's uh, report from 2019 and subsequent stuff, or you just read the indictments of John Durham, which added more information about how the Clinton campaign in 2016 had an open door to the FBI to gin up investigations that were phony baloney against Trump, then I don't, you know, like, I just think, it's it's I'm more concerned that people who I respect, who I think are smart, who have access to that information, still insist that it's a nothing burger. Then there's another, you know, smoking gun or shoe to drop. I think that there's enough shoes that have dropped that it might not be the greatest scandal in the history of politics, but it's a pretty big sized scandal. I think it's I think if this had happened, if this if the roles were were reversed and um, let's just say Roger Stone had provided the FBI with um, dubious opposition research that made it into a FISA warrant of a Hillary Clinton aide and uh, affected the FBI's investigations of Hillary Clinton, everybody would be saying that that's Watergate 2.0. I'm just saying if that was the if, if you just switched the actors on right. that and. Right. They still will not acknowledge that. And that is a deeper kind of problem with like our politics. Maybe it's like an a, like epistemological problem about like how we know something is true. But whatever it is, it's a huge issue. So I don't get the idea that there's like another document that will finally persuade, you know, the editors of, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post that they've been wrong the whole time. And this was a right. corrupt investigation because well, I think you already have the you're using a heuristic to navigate a complex situation. Let's go yeah. back to Cash Patel for a second. Cash Patel's okay. initial defense of this situation is that the president has the, the unilateral authority to declassify, not just waving his hand over something, but simply conceiving of it as declassified retroactively thereby declassifying it and this oh, you mean the as ex, ex president he could do it no we, we, as president right. uh, before before the stroke of noon on january 20th whatever the uh, date happens to be and when he's president he has the power to declassify even by thought certainly by action not necessarily by document and this authority exists in the executive and it does not have any check on it by the other two branches of congress or the congress and the judiciary i don't think that has held up in the week since we began to dive into the jurisprudence around this and the congressional acts around this. For example, this uh, Atomic Energy Agency Act, uh, which has come up briefly, suggests, indicates, in fact, in text, that these documents that are related to nuclear information are, quote, born classified. They, are, they must be declassified or removed from the restricted data category by act, not by thought necessarily. Likewise, we have congressional intervention in this process in the form of the Pre Presidential Records Act. And the Presidential Libraries Act, which indicates that the first branch, prima inter pares, 
does have authority to intervene in this process. Likewise, the, the courts have ruled in <clears throat> ruled in this in the 2019 um, Second uh, Circuit decision uh, reviewing an executive order from the Obama era uh, between the New York uh, between the New York Times and the Central Intelligence Agency ruled that a verbal quote standing order does not class declassify a document quote declassification cannot occur unless designated officials follow specific procedures executive order 13526 established the detailed process through which secret information can be appropriately declassified declassification even by the president must follow established procedures the supreme court did not overrule this uh, verdict so we understand it to stand so whether whatever you think of the documents that we don't understand that what they are, we don't know what was in those documents, but okay. we do know that both branches of Congress have intervened in this process, have exercised their authority over this process, which suggests that it is not absolute within the executive as the man himself. No, it, it, it you're exactly right, but it is also not fully adjudicated because we don't have the direct role of the second president. part of my thought is that if there is an, a gap in the jurisprudence around this or the legislation around this, then Congress and the courts must certainly act to fill that gap. If Donald Trump has uncovered something that Congress has not thoroughly weighed in on and established as and as a proper uh, uh, you know conduct, then they have to clarify that. But I don't know what that would be in this particular case. Hold on, but no, but aren't you, hold on. The, the fact no, that you, the the search warrant does allows for them to seize documents even if they're not classified. So Charlie Cook made a pretty good point on this. Right. Like, wouldn't uh, that mean that like that, they they this, like they, well, the they the, know it's a little sketchy, too? This is the root of the fishing expedition idea. Yeah. It says, you know, you can basically seize whatever document was uh, drafted in the time that Donald Trump served as president. Sure. But also and that's a broad swath. Right. But if they don't know what they're looking for, how could they limit themselves in the pursuit of these this information? Maybe they, they do can, know what they, they can. Maybe they don't. No, but the answer is they can. So who says the search warrant has to be executed at nine o'clock in the morning? There's another thing that you guys brought up six. here. I'm sorry they I'm interrupting because there. I've been taking notes as you've been talking. There's an element of uh, terrible food in such small portions to the complaints about uh, no. Garland because he, why did he wait so long? And also why did he act at all? Because it's such a sensitive situation. No, I no, I, no, but no, if no, 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 that, no, that's that's wrong here. I, I'm sorry that that is that is absolutely wrong. It the argument that is being made by the people who are acting as though the very execution of the search warrant and the fact that Trump had these boxes in this basement at Mar-a-Lago are the smoking gun that he will needs to be indicted and convicted and hanged, you know, and and decapitated and have his body salted and, you know, uh, sent out into the wilderness. Um, that's that they that that idea is based in the notion that the documents are unbelievably sensitive. If you know the, the warrant was written weeks before Garland signed it. Therefore, if there were unbelievably sensitive documents in Trump's possession that he should not have, there is no excuse for waiting weeks to sign the document. If it is prima facie the case that Trump cannot, anyone outside of a skiff or, you know, it's, you know, you know, in the in the in the, the Game of Thrones library on the island of Illyria is allowed to even touch these documents lest they, you know, explode. Then you don't wait three weeks. 
maybe you wait a couple of days, maybe you have a giant, you know, session about what you're doing, or you even talk to the president or whatever the hell it is, but you don't get, if it's, if it's so vital, the, 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 the length of time that Garland gave himself to ruminate gives the lie to the idea that it is too dangerous for these documents to be out of the immediate possession of the intelligence agencies or the national archives. That's number one. And number two, um, you cannot look at uh, the, the, the thing is like you're citing case law, but what is unprecedented here was the fact that these documents were in the personal possession of the former president, not that they were leaked by some official somewhere, but whatever, and the and the act says thus and such and the other thing. We have no idea, even if there is a subclause in an individual law relating to atomic secrets, that Congress has any Congress does not have regulatory power over the president himself. Of that, we are sure. I mean, he the Congress, the president is the executive branch. He is co-equal to Congress in that sense, and they do they cannot regulate him. They can regulate everybody around him. They can they can they have to appropriate money for his office, for his expenses, and for this and for that and the other thing. And they can come at him through impeachment and conviction if he violates any standard that they believe has been violated. But they cannot regulate him. Now, that doesn't mean that that the Supreme Court hearing the case about whether Trump had the power to um, declassify simply by thinking or passing his hand over something. The Supreme Court's going to have to hear that case. They're going briefs are going to have to be written. Friends of the court briefs are going to have to be written. It may have to go through a district court and appeals court before it gets to the Supreme Court, and every individual action that was taken they can all maybe be bundled into a single case but it's not a single case because the question of whether it was okay to seize the non-classified documents is one bit the seizure of the classified documents is another bit the behavior of the fbi is a third bit and so on and there there could be 20 30 40 different actions here and they are not going to be resolved in time whatever time is because there is no precedent everything that i am saying about trump is arguable it may be wrong but it's not like there's no argument that trump does that the cash patel argument which sounds insane that he can just declassify something by thought it may sound insane but it is not a dismissible argument based on the language of the Constitution and our precedent about what the president, what it means for there to be a separation of powers. Can I can I jump in to say I, I want to go back to something that Eli said a little earlier about the addictive quality of these sorts of narratives, particularly in terms of how the mainstream media has once again got Trump on every front page and Trump on every top of every news segment on cable news. I recall Trump as president having 
I called this a skill, although I think it was very bad for our republic, but he had a way of just spinning a different story if the first one didn't work, right? It's like, I'm going to pitch you this. Uh, you don't, you're not buying that pitch. I'm just going to totally reverse it and say this other story. And week after week, he would do this. It was extremely politically savvy when he was confronting a particular opponent like Hillary. It was very bad during COVID because one week he'd say drink bleach, the next week he'd say, ah, oh, we, you know, we don't need to do that. He was the inconsistency was actually kept people glued to their screens and kept the media flush with cash and flush with new viewers and flush with new subscribers, parsing all of this stuff. And we're doing it again um, because we don't, you know, as we have said over and over again, we don't know the details of of what was in that seizure. Although we hopefully will learn a little more if if they release some of the affidavit. But we're we're in this position again, and this benefits Trump. We see it now with DeSantis's popularity taking a nosedive. We are not talking about Trump's actual tenure as president anymore. We are talking about was Trump treated unfairly in in his role as an ex-president? Is and and he loves this fight because he's the victim. He can be the martyr. He can talk about the deep state, and all of his supporters will have have run back to him, and you know formed a little circle the wagons around him. And I think that's dangerous. And I and I agree with Eli that there is, we're never going to get the mainstream media to stop talking about Trump. Um, but we should be careful about encouraging a kind of obsessiveness with him without constantly harking back to what we know he did when he did have power. And we know he did a lot of things that really did undermine our system of government and, and not just January 6th, but there were so many norms he broke that are going to take time to repair. And, and I just... I don't want to sound like a scold, but I feel like there there's a real danger here in just look, playing into the narrative that Trump is very happy. He's very happy to be having this argument right now. Let's talk about another argument that Democrats could be, ha- except it's too it's too pleasing to them. But if you want to talk about Trump and his and and his role in American politics, we have all of this information this week that Republican politicians, Republican leaders, Republican everybody are starting to come to grips with the very real possibility that Trump's involvement in the 2022 elections is going to cost them potential control of the Senate in November, right? Just as Trump's involvement in the Georgia recount cost Republicans the Senate in 2020 by depressing turnout and leading to those two Georgia seats going to Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. Mitch McConnell is basically saying there's a greater chance that the House will flip than the Senate. He's having to throw his fund is throwing twenty eight million dollars at J.D. Vance in Ohio. Why does that matter? It matters because the J.D. Vance Ohio race does not represent an opportunity for a Republican pickup. That seat that J.D. Vance is running for against Tim Ryan is a Republican held seat by Rob Portman. Loss of it then takes the means the GOP will have to win two back to get the majority, not one. And that is something that McConnell is now committing vast resources, a huge amount of money. $28 million from this fund is a huge amount of money. Blake Masters is down nine in aggregate. In in uh, By the way, and this is a state that's Trump plus eight. Like this, this shouldn't be competitive. Vance should be walking into that seat, right? Masters uh, is down nine to Mark Kelly. Herschel Walker is down five to uh, to Raphael Warnock. We don't even know how far Oz is down against John Fetterman. It's like 10 to 15 points. Um, 
Candidate quality matters. Yeah. Candidate quality. That's what McConnell said. Right. So what we have here is a very interesting situation, which is all they want to talk about is throwing the book at Trump. We have a very interesting moment that the that the right is going to have to deal with that that there is some glee on the left on, but they just can't get away from the courtroom, which is Trump's involvement in American politics is actually potentially ruining the Republican Party's resurgence after an election in which they after years in which having had the White House, they lost the White House, they lost the House and they lost the Senate. And Trump is directly involving himself in 2022. And except for safe seats where his candidates are beating other candidates like Liz Cheney being beaten by Harriet Hageman, his intervention is apparently disastrous. And they they like it. So they're publishing articles on it. But they're still happier to talk about the Fulton County prosecutor and whether or not Lindsey Graham is going to be able to evade, you know, testifying before the uh, before the Fulton County prosecutor or something like that. See, that's interesting because that's Trump's place in politics, but they they can't they can't quit him as somebody has got to take him and destroy somebody's got to take him and and do terrible things to him and has got to make sure that he is in an orange jumpsuit at Rikers like his former CFO Alan Weisselberg who astonishingly is going to Rikers which is one of the worst jails in America if not the worst jail in America he's a 75 year old man who is being convicted of of tax you know evasion things and he's going to have to sit for five months in this terrifying hellhole. This is some bizarre effort to sort of like nail Trump or to punish him for not flipping on Trump, right? But um, that's what they want. They want, and by the way, if Trump is ever convicted, it won't be good enough. Wherever he goes will not be good enough, you know, unless unless it's Riker. So uh, I don't know. It's just an interesting moment. They can't. The mania, the hunger. Uh, there's a very interesting. There's a Twitter feed. A guy named Ron Filipowski. It's 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 valuable because he's like yeah, a yeah. he's, he's a like lunatic. an obsessive lunatic. But he clips lots of crazy things that right wingers say all day, and it, it has its value in its own way. But he's sure. like, he's going to frog march. They're going to frog march him. Here he comes. I'm. I always said the Atlanta, the Fulton County prosecutor in Atlanta was the one who was going to get him. Here, here it comes. It's coming. It's coming. Like, how many times in the last five years have we heard that Trump was going to get? Or six I mean, years? it's not. I mean, Ron Filikowski, I don't know who he is. It's some of the most, you know, uh, leading legal minds in the country. Lawrence Tribe, who I remember in the well, 1990s. He's not a leading legal mind. He's I, a anyway, hard idiot. And okay, he but he's a professor. He was a professor. Reason, at, I know. Harvard. No, he's, an, he's an August person who should be a January person. Okay, Lawrence I, Tribe all, is a ridiculous person. Okay, I agree with you, John. If, I, if Alan Dershowitz is a ridiculous person, Lawrence Tribe is twice the ridiculous person. Okay. that Alan Dershowitz okay. is. It's not just. I I'm can't saying, even start. I, I just got it. Let me just say this because okay, I'm now going to rant enough. in five seconds. Lawrence right. Tribe had this family website like 15 years ago that he then finally made private. You have never seen anything like the vanity, vainglory, ridiculous, preening, self-congratulation uh, okay. of his family website. Like, 
He's a guy, if I knew, if I were at a party and Lawrence Tribe were coming in, I will bet you that people who know Lawrence Tribe in Cambridge or wherever it is, he comes in a room and they head for the bar and face the wall rather than having to talk to him for 12 seconds. And his nonsense about Trump, his constant printing nonsense about Trump is of a piece with the fact that he has this pedigree from harvard and he should have a pedigree from the from the american kennel club um, from the university yeah, of, of american samoa like like saul goodman um okay i was gonna say is i agree with you if okay. you read his twitter and you watch him on msnbc you think you are looking at a someone who's mentally ill however this is somebody who was the law professor of adam schiff merrick garland and who is taken extremely seriously. And it's not just him. It's all these former senior FBI people. Like Peter Strzok was on Morning Joe, asked by Joe Scarborough, hey, uh, should the American people trust the FBI? And then it's, I mean, I, you know, that's amazing to me. It's like having Harvey Weinstein do a PSA for like Time's Up. Like, you know, uh, we've made enough reforms in Hollywood. You can trust the couch, casting counts. Thanks, Peter Strzok. Thanks for, you think we should trust the FBI? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, we're never partisan. And it's like the most partisan guy. So I'm saying there's a whole cadre of these people who are supposed to be who are the law professors, who are the former prosecutors, who are what might be called the legal or law enforcement elite. And they go on CNN and they go on MSNBC and they are part of this like fog machine, this disinformation, misinformation machine that will take anonymous leaks, usually maybe from Congress, maybe from the justice. We don't know. They're anonymous and spin them into walls are closing in any minute now. So it's like one thing to have, you know, a Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is a, you know, former, what, aerobics instructor who got lucky and got elected to Congress. It's another thing when you have Harvard law professors who are on the other side of this, who are completely nuts and they give the impression to a lower information voter, lower information viewer that, well, you know, hey, he's a Harvard law professor. Who am I to argue? And that that's the dynamic we've had for like six years. My favorite thing is, and, and then I got to do some ad reads, but I just okay. want to point out, like, for a year and a half, two years, three years, Noah and I were on would be on these panels on MSNBC and there would be talk <laughs> about Mueller, right? There would be talk about Mueller. And then if you said, I don't know, I don't see how this is, they're like, you don't know what he knows. He knows everything. <laughs> he, you know, and he was a, and he was in the military, and he was head of the, and he's phlegmat, and he, you know, poo, don't you? There, the walls are closing in. Right then, two <laughs> things happen. One, he wrote the report, and they were so unhappy. They were so unhappy with the report. Except then they said, no, 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 you don't understand what Mueller's really doing. He's giving 10 obstruction of justice charges in the first half of the week, even though he's not saying he's going to. When are they going to unredact the, the, the 10% that was classified? And there were 10 obstruction charges, so he's really doing it. And then he testified, and he seemed senile. And yes. then they were like, ugh, Mueller. Barr. They blame They blame Barr. Yeah. It's Mueller. hard. What a monster. Mueller. Mueller. So like it takes so they go through these stages of like lionization, deification, then disappointment and then rage. So that I think is probably going to happen in most of the you know, it's going to happen. Oh, on Mar-a-Lago, I think it's definitely going to happen. 
on okay. Mar-a-Lago, it's going to yeah. happen because you you pointed something out on the podcast in the when we first heard about it. The initial reaction was like, ah, I don't know. Right. I mean, the initial reaction was like, what? This is a presidential records act dispute and they're raining the guy. This is uh, ugh, they better have the goods. That was remember, that was like Axelrod and these yeah. other people that was yeah. now they've all gone on the page of like. The president stole classified documents and the Justice Department tried everything they could do to get them back. And what else could they possibly do? The man's a criminal. What are you talking about? And they're, it's we're going to go through this again. And I don't want to act like it's just, oh, my God, yeah. isn't it hilarious? I'm like loving these lib tears. No, it's terrible for the country because it radicalizes the Democratic Party in a way that Trump has radicalized the Republican Party. Exactly. And it's the okay. other side of it. Exactly. Now. You're listening to this podcast. You should listen to Eli's podcast, The Reeducation, and you should download and listen to this week's Call Me Back podcast with Dan Senor, our old friend, uh, commentary board member, and author of Startup Nation. Dan's been in Israel for the past month, and he has a barn burner of a show this week with probably the most interesting journalist in and around Israel right now, Mati Friedman. So Mati Friedman is a very interesting character. He he writes about national security. He writes about Israeli identity. He writes about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And his most recent book is a uh, portrait of Leonard Cohen. Uh, oh. And how Leonard Cohen, it's called Who by Fire, and it's about how Leonard Cohen found his way back to Judaism in the 1970s after a catastrophic series of career reversals, uh, who by fire, uh, Leonard Cohen and the Sinai. Uh, if you love Leonard Cohen and I don't, it's an amazing book. And if you don't love Leonard Cohen, it's a fascinating book, but um, his book, uh, pumpkin flowers, which, which was about uh, the war in Lebanon and what it was like to serve in the war in Lebanon is also a remarkable thing. And he here, um, is uh, talking about, in this podcast, uh, important matters, and in particular something that shares uh, uh, a root with a piece that we published in commentary by Gil Troy in our uh, July-August issue about how there is no Israeli-Palestinian conflict. There are conflicts between Israel and Arabs. And they have different roots and different causes and different solutions and different remedies. And we are seeing some of those remedies uh, over time as, as the Abraham Accords are signed and all of that. But that the, Palestine, the Israel-Palestinian conflict, which we continue to hear from people like Jeremy Ben-Ami of, the, of, of J Street, uh, is the uh, core problem of the Middle East and must be, if it's not solved... There is no way to move forward while Israel moves forward from having been the hundredth poorest country in the world to the to the twenty seventh richest country in the world, um, and where to go and what to do and what role this plays in Israeli politics and American politics and world politics. So that's Dan Senor's great podcast with Monty Friedman. Call me back. Download it today if you don't have it in your feed, or subscribe to it today. Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever. And you will be illuminated and fascinated and uh, learn a lot, as you will learn so much if you go to Bonson.com, our friend, another friend of the podcast, David Bonson, B-A-H-N-S-A-N, Bonson.com, and, and start enroll and enroll in his free course in the history 
thought process and um, philosophy of economics. 30 lectures, uh, a great syllabus, 30 online lectures. And by the time you are done, you will have a graduate level education in this vital topic. Thousands have signed up, a lot of them from this podcast. I'm hearing fantastic things about it. Bonson.com, you go right there. You'll see a big B on the left-hand side of the page. You just move your eye over to the middle. You'll see the word economics course. You click on it. You put in your name. You put in your email. You say briefly what, why you think this is a good thing for you. And then you have full access for free. And it's all free. This is it. To a economics history and philosophy seminar that is non-pareil. So that's Bonson.com economics course. Do it now. Um, Noah, uh, the media seem to be catching up with remarkably positive developments in Ukraine. Would you say? No. Okay. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. Um, this has been the, the dynamic that I've been harping on for a long time is that when they don't do the tactical day-to-day -day stuff and they pan out for a 30,000 foot perspective on the strategic situation in Eastern Ukraine and Southern Ukraine is they sort of have a, a firm hold on the conventional wisdom that's about two weeks old. So we have this piece, New York Times, it's titled Russia's Struggles. It's promoted on the homepage as surprisingly uh, interesting victories on Ukraine's part. Uh, mostly counteroffensives in and around Kyrgyzstan and uh, the uh, which is in the south of the country near the Black Sea coast, not not on it, but near it. Uh, and it's preceded by a series of uh, insurgency operations inside Crimea, some ship uh, based missile strikes inside Crimea, which would have been pretty established, uh, spectacularly successful. And the assumption here on the part of watchers of this space is that this is a prelude this is degrading the capabilities of Russia to reinforce the front when they execute when when Ukraine executes a, a for real counteroffensive in and around Kyrgyzstan to retake the city of Kyrgyzstan. Um, and this is a piece in the New York Times. It's by uh, David Lanhart and Claire Moses, and uh, it's it's fine. It's right uh, that Ukraine is doing a pretty good job here of uh, executing the laying the groundwork for a counteroffensive, but. We're also seeing now, right now, which will appear in two weeks from now in a strategic position, a strategic view of the conflict in the New York Times, uh, that there's a, a lot of trepidation about the limits of the of the amount of weapons that they've been getting from the West to to achieve the strategic and tactical victories that they want to achieve in this counteroffensive. And yesterday, I think it was, we got we saw news that just about every major economy in Europe had slowed to the point of uh just a crawl, if anything, uh, the delivery of weapons platforms, not ammunition, but weapons platforms to the conflict. Um, so in the event that they do engage in this counteroffensive, which I anticipate will um, fully materialize in the next week or so, um, then we'll start to hear the hemming and hawing about how the Europeans have dropped the ball and why didn't we you know, know this at the time when they could have done something about it at the time. Now is the time. This is the time right now to be doing something about it. Um, I want to point one thing out, Eli, uh, from our friends at the Institute for the Study of War, Fred Kagan and Kim Kagan and uh, and everybody there, um, because uh, one one wrinkle over the last week has been 
uh, a sudden terrified fear about this, um, if I can pr pronounce it right, Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which is the largest nuclear power plant in Europe. And there's a lot of talk about how it's at risk. It, there is a threat. It is in danger of, uh, of, of being caught in the crossfire. And um, as we are hearing this I'm not hearing, kind of, not to interrupt you, but that's yeah. fully well established. We have video footage of okay. Russian soldiers yeah. using no, but I want, I want, nuclear right, no, plant to launch rocket attacks and hiding behind it. So, no, the point is that there's like fear mongering going on about the danger to the plant on the Today Show and other places, which of course would lead to the the implicit idea here would be they better come to the table and settle this before the world explodes. And I'm bringing this up because the Institute for the Study of War says entirely that this is an this is a disinformation campaign by the Russian Ministry of Defense, which uh, quote appears to be setting information conditions to blame Ukrainian forces for future false flag operations at the nuclear power plant. That's what you were alluding to, Noah. This is a very important thing that people need to understand when you hear about this. That. Uh, when the American media are trumpeting or parroting or talking about what's going on at the nuclear power plant, um, you should know that they are uh, basically operating as stooges of Putin. Not that the plant's not at risk because of false flag operations are still operations. The Russians may still fire things in and around the plant that could, you know, potentially cause terrible trouble. But um, but that that is that is a big thing, and it is very disheartening to see the American media play into Putin's hands uh, in, in this way. Wouldn't be the first time, anyway. <laughs> Wouldn't be the first time. So, um, but uh, Eli, as a as a as a as a student of of these matters, uh, and a and a long time watcher of the way people cover cover war, uh, the. Uh, I, I want. I, I was hoping you could reflect a little bit on this question of how the media coverage uh, has this manic, illiterate manic quality. Like I think forty, fifty years ago, when people even even when coverage of Vietnam was bad or things were bad, you did have a, a large body of people who were in the media, who had at least been in the military. They'd been right. drafted into World War II. They'd been drafted into Korea. They had spent two or three years either in combat or they had been in the military in some fashion. And so they weren't coming at this from the perspective of the Swarthmore College pacifistic campus mm. operation. And we're dealing with very real very old fashioned war conditions albeit in a you know in a time of social media and all of that and i don't just i just don't trust that the people a lot of the people who are writing about this watching and going there have in their kishkas any sense and i i speak as somebody who did not serve in the military but i don't you know i i don't you know the new york times had M michael gordon who was a i think a lieutenant yeah. colonel no, um, no, no, he wasn't. He wrote. He wrote with Bernard Trainer, but no, Gordon wrote, had, so Bernard Trainer was Gordon, lieutenant, Colonel, right? He but, Gordon I'm had sorry. had embedded in so many of these conflicts that he, right. he it was right. like he was. He no, was but the head. 
Yeah. But there were leading figures at leading newspapers who themselves had been veteran, not only veterans, but had actually been officers and things like that, who then went into journalism. I'm not lionizing it because there was plenty of bad coverage of wars and things in the 70s and 80s and before. But um, anyway. Well, okay, so so I think we need a little bit of, of, of of a kind of context, which is to say that one of the powerful things about coverage of the Vietnam War, particularly after the Pentagon Papers, was that you had, you know, a generation more than, you know, since World War Two, the military and the U.S., the federal government had high levels of trust among the population. And between the Vietnam War and Watergate and a lot of other corruption scandals, that all kind of frittered away in the early 1970s and the Pentagon Papers and the publication of the Pentagon Papers had a lot to do with it. And a lot of these those journalists who had served in the military and were now reporting on the Vietnam War later on, you know, were coming back and they were saying, you know, we keep getting told in these briefings one thing and we know it's not true. And that what we so Vietnam in some ways is like this long, slow reveal that we can't trust the Pentagon. We can't trust the government to tell us what's really going on in the war. And that was a very profound thing in the 70s. The difference is, is that journalists of this generation grow up with the assumption that these institutions are going to snow you and that, you know, there's almost kind of it's like a superficial kind of skepticism. Unless, of course, it's the FBI or the Justice Department leaking something absurd about Donald Trump. And then we have we if we question it, then we are, you know insurrectionist or something. But that's another story. My point is, is that there is not there. We don't have that experience of having that very real trust in these institutions, you know, being squandered, you know, through through the uh, what the government was saying, what they were hiding from us in a war. And we're in a, we're just in a very different situation at this point. Um, and so that's the first that's the first thing. The second thing is, is that we just have fewer war correspondents and foreign correspondents and people who've made their careers in actually covering the conflicts over there. I have done some of that kind of reporting. It's not been the you know, I haven't done it. It's not been the exclusive focus of my career, but I have at least done it. But now a lot of the people who are making the decisions as to what's going to go on the you know Today Show or the evening broadcast or CNN segment you know, are 20 somethings who, you know, went to Swarthmore and have to juggle all kinds of news from all over the place. They don't have it's like there's very few people who are going to have that kind of specialty. I mean, Richard Engel is somebody who is a conflict reporter. He's got that. But, you know, there's lots of other people, you know, his network who have no idea and they're going to still have to come up with a segment on it. So that's another part of it. Now, as for the specific story about the false flag stuff, I think it's I, I don't I can't see that much in the mainstream media giving the Russians the benefit of the doubt. But the there is going to be such a, an allure. There's going to be such a, a push. And we already sort of starting to see it is that as you start to see economies in Europe, in particular, our economy kind of grinding to halt. You saw what Biden did, which really undermined his Ukraine policy when he called it the Putin price hike for uh, gas prices. And he blamed inflation on Putin's invasion of Ukraine that all right, well, if we could just get the Ukrainians, you made your point, you know, to negotiate then maybe we can get the economy going again. And what that, that that's a different kind of problem. That's the problem of not understanding that, uh, you know, Russia's responsible, you know, for all of this misery. And that if you let them sort of feel that they get some kind of victory, if we get some sort of compromise, then it's going to embolden them to do this again. And we're going to still have to face this problem. But that's a separate issue than like, are they, you know, useful idiots? Right. 
mouthing this propaganda where I actually think in a weird way, John, and maybe you could correct me, um, that was more of a problem in the 70s because when you had that loss of trust from Vietnam, yeah. you saw a number of people who should have been more, you know, skeptical of the U.S. government, but not kind of embracing, you know, the other side kind of, you know, say ridiculous things about Cambodia saying that there was no genocide and it was all just yeah. CIA black information when there was a horrible thing that was going on at that point. That was a result of our withdrawal that you were able to see lots of people, you know, kind of demonizing yeah. the South Vietnamese government when we defunded it with Congress defunded over the objections of the Ford administration. It was sort of based on the fact that, well, you know, like we trusted you before and now we can't believe anything you say, um, you know, whereas it would have been better to kind of maybe take a more measured view at that point. Well, I, Vietnam is too comp complex yeah. an example. I mean, because ideological as well as practical concerns ended up holding sway and controlling the way that these things were 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 covered. And things really did get better in the eighties and nineties, in the way, for example, Grenada was covered. Sure. Or or Panama was, but we had like much easier Gulf. wars. We had quick, quick. Well, they were, they were, they were, yes. they were. But, but there was an understanding in a weird way in these, in, in, in some of these newsrooms that they needed to have people who knew what was happening. That you know, opining wasn't the equal of fact gathering, and that you needed to right. know have people who That's understood what it meant that there were troop movements. Mm -hmm. And they weren't just 24 year old bloggers who didn't know what the hell they were talking about. But anyway, Christine, one last thing uh, as our media commentary columnist. So uh, we talked before the show started about uh, this bizarre series of stories in The Washington Post this week, a kind of retroactive defense of the intelligence agencies in the United States under the Biden administration, which knew they really knew that Russia was going to invade. They knew. And wow, did they have good intelligence? And they and they interviewed Zelensky. Uh, the Washington Post did, who said, I was getting this intelligence. I knew they were going to invade. Basically, I was not telling the Ukrainian people that an invasion was imminent in that way because I didn't need hundreds of thousands of people running for the border, running for the exits, con con you know, um, agricultural contracts being canceled, billions of dollars. We I needed a populace that was here. We would have we would have fallen in three days, he said, had I taken a different tone. Okay. So it's an interesting article, whatever, defending and talking about Zelensky. And then they run a follow-up yesterday by Liz Sly, which was called Zelensky Faces, Unprecedented Outpouring of Criticism Over Failure to Warn of War. And this piece actually says, quotes, four people and a couple of Facebook posts People are actually saying I'm I'm insulted because I wouldn't have run. So he could have told us the truth and we would have stayed, whatever. Or he could have told us what he knew or whatever you want to say, however you want to put it. What is the purpose? And then as, as Eli and Noah then pointed out, according to the most recent polling, I don't know how you're polling in Ukraine, but there's an ISI, the uh, RRI poll, International Republican Institute poll, that has Zelensky with a 91% approval rating in Ukraine. Outpouring of criticism. This piece being done simply to a, be a follow to the Washington Post's own dogged reporting on how the Biden, having 
having basically sucked from the teat of the Biden administration about how great they were, they're doing a follow-up looking to attack Zelensky but this, for so, quotes okay, he so gave them. Okay. This is how a media narrative is built. And when I read the first piece, I thought, well, never underestimate the Washington Post's willingness uh, to completely carry water for an administration, the Biden administration, that his whose foreign policy is, you know, questionable at best. But they're doing it. They're doggedly doing it. Here it is. And and the argument that, well, we we knew and we warned them. And just, you know, it's this Zelensky, this celebrity who literally every single world leader wants to get a selfie with. Like it, he just didn't listen. Um, the follow-on story though is fascinating to me because this is another example of of a real problem with our mainstream media. Their idea of reporting is reading snarky Facebook comments and then saying, you know, look, someone said this on Facebook. I was like, yeah, you should see what my crazy uncle says on Facebook. But that shouldn't appear in The Washington Post as some sort of thoughtful analysis. So it was it's a weird sort of self-gratifying impulse that The Post has to kind of say as the sort of dean of, of you know, uh, political journalism to be like, yes, you know, we knew the Biden administration knew we told this guy and he just didn't listen. And now everyone's really outraged. But if you read, it's it's also very uh, overlaid with emotional uh, responses. You know, one of the people they quote says, honestly, my hair stood on end when I read what Zelensky said about evacuation. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. It literally reads like your crazy uncle's Facebook feed. And the the idea that the Washington Post would merit this as some kind of um, a broad response on behalf of the Ukrainian people and their attitude towards their leader during wartime is ridiculous. You know, when I was a kid in the 80s, uh, the dean of Washington reporters, the most august figure, the David one Broder. that everyone respected the most was um, David Broder of the Washington Post. He was he was a lionized figure. And what was David Broder's specialty? So his specialty was he would go to a place and then he would walk down the street and he would ring doorbells and talk to ordinary people about how they felt about the budget deficit. And friends of mine and I w could not believe our eyes. Like these story, it was it was in a country then of 250 million people that David Broder talked to seven people on you know Wachita Street in Macomb County, Michigan was some stand-in for understanding the thought processes of people in the Midwest and all of that. And, and deservedly so, I think, the mockery. But at least David Broder had to walk, right? I mean, Andy Ferguson is always like David Broder and his shoe leather. It's shoe leather reporting. But, I mean, at least he had to walk. You know, if you do Facebook reporting, you're sitting on your ass at your desk and just like clicking on things and then thinking that, the, you know, so in fairness, Liz know. Sly is a foreign correspondent and she has done very brave reporting from Syria okay. and like she's middle. I know her stuff from the Middle East and, and she's done real stuff. So I don't want to. OK, OK, <clears throat> that's fine. So yeah. she's done shoe leather reporting in the Middle East. And I'm not. I, but this is a terrible story and she doesn't get a pass on having written it. I don't know why she wrote it. I don't know who, what editor asked her writer, if she wanted to do it or what her motives were. And I, she's congratulations to Liz life for her previous work. And she gets a big raspberry for this one. And I'll look to her other work next week. <sighs> Commentary um, podcast listeners who have a lot of time on their hands should go back to early February and hear us having the exact same conversation we are having today, <laughs> because that was in the world. It was mostly on the right. It was the right wing, 
uh, isolationist types who are skeptical about American projection of American foreign po uh, power or the protection of its interests abroad, who are saying, well, listen, even Zelensky is not saying that there's going to be a war here. What does the Biden administration know? They don't know anything. And Zelensky's saying pamping this down. So we <laughs> should we should err on the side of caution here. And at the end, I remember saying that he's not doing nothing. He's drilling civilians. He's handing out pamphlets about civil defense drills and where the shelters are. He's arming civilians and doing exercises in squares. Look, here's the picture of this happening. He's hardening targets. What are you talking about not preparing? What he's not saying is that there's going to be a civilization ending war so that the entire populace flees and the economy collapses before a first a shot is fired. Makes perfect sense to me. Uh, and that and Eli, still makes perfect sense to me. And it's in the record and you yeah. should go check it out. And Eli, you, you were pointing out before the podcast about the lack of faith that the Pentagon seemed to have in a military that it had been, been training training yeah please please I mean some of this I think is that it's it's ironic right that there was a lot of faith in the um in the Afghan military at least at the White House and they they collapsed and then there was zero faith uh on the uh ukrainian military and part of that was because i'd written about this back in 2014 there was very good reason there's a piece actually in the washington post by greg miller today on this there was very good reason to think that a lot of the uh, ukrainian kind of national security institutions had been penetrated by the russians who of course are going to have an interest in that and i think what was discounted was that there really is a tangible sense of ukrainian nationalism and that is that is what has shine what has shown through uh, in all of this. But yeah, there was a completely missed the competence of the Ukrainian military to sort of stave off the attack. And, um, and a wild overestimation of the yeah. competence of the Russian military, which really is uh, yes. the ultimate story of this yes. conflict by the Russian military itself, by us, by the by, right. by a lot of people. Congratulations, you got the fact that they were going to invade, but you failed to understand that they were. Yeah, that they just were, how hollow the yeah, how was their of tanks were going to sink in the mud. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's it's uh, and I, I really like, Noah, I have to say your approach to this, which is, you know, you are like, let's follow these events on the ground and not go with the over the veering reactions on either side that you're kind of getting in the mainstream commentary every few weeks. And that is a very good thing. And I think overall, fundamentally, I think we, we already know this, but the Ukrainians have really shown they're a real nation state. They are not just part of Russia. And if you look at if you go back to that original terrifying speech from Vladimir Putin on the eve of this invasion. That was his proposition. It's not a real country. It's ours. And we're going to prove it. And he was proven wrong. And there's just at this point, I mean, I want to I, I, I want I want to I want to see the Russian army broken. Uh, I want Ukraine to win. And I think we all do. But the, 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 that's we should never lose sight of the fact that that's that's now established. That has been demonstrated. Right. And that has a lot to do with Zelensky. But it also has a lot to do with the Ukrainian people. And you know who's got a personnel problem? So Putin has personnel problems. Oh, I love it. Is this the Bambi right? ad? It's the what Bambi a transition. Ad. Oh, my Putin, God. Putin's replacing people over Jay the place. The best. And you know what he needs? <laughs> you know what he needs? I'm not, I'm not, he doesn't need it because I'm sure Bambi would not cooperate with Putin. <laughs> but look, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $70,000 a year. So that's why you need Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, -E, 
for your small business to get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance, all for just $99 a month. Change ah. HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength with a dedicated HR manager available by phone, email, or real-time chat. They customize your policies to fit your business, all for just $99 a month, and that's month-to-month. -month. No hidden fees. Cancel any time. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today at Bambi.com slash commentary right now. That's Bambi.com slash commentary, spelled B-A-M to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. So, Eli, I'm very pleased that you enjoyed that transition. Simply it takes us to uh, uh, hopes that everyone will have for a wonderful weekend. Noah, I hope you enjoy your time tonight on Showtime, real time, party time, halftime. It's on HBO, not Showtime. On. You're misdirecting everybody. I'm That's sorry. A different network. I, 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 real time. I'm sorry. HBO. I'm sorry. Um, and uh, can I do one last plug for my pod, please? Uh, this the the latest episode is called the the Federal Bureau of Double, Double Standards. It's just a solo one with me, but the one before that, uh, is um, I'm sorry, the last week's pod because I've been doing two a week is called um, Punk's Creative Destruction. I highly recommend it. It's really I, good. Can thank endorse. You very, I can thank, endorse. <laughs> thank you very much. My mother, who listens to my podcast, was like, I listen to it because you're my son and I love you, but I hate that music. And I couldn't get through it because I just can't. I just hate it. Why do people like it anyway? It's very Why funny. are you telling people that? What? Because your mother I, loved the podcast, Chris. My mother does love the podcast. My mother loves the podcast. My mother loves the podcast, but this is the kind of music you like don't want your mom music. to like. She doesn't like punk music, exactly. But right. if you like punk music, you'll really enjoy it. My guest is Nick Gillespie. It's a really good one. Okay, that's the re-education with Eli Lake. Like Noah, I'm going to tell you 50 times. Mention the name of the thing you're promoting. Noah's book, The Rise of the New Puritans. Eli's podcast, The Re-Education. Christine doesn't have a podcast, so she's got nothing to. We have the I Commentary Magazine Sorry. podcast. Everybody have a wonderful weekend. We'll be back on Monday. Thanks, Eli. Thank Great you. Great to have you, as always. And for the absent Abe, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.